0: Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Today Andy will be answering questions submitted by you in no particular order. Our first question this week comes from Cindy. Is it incumbent on the government to create greater equality in society via wealth distribution measures like tax reform? How much of wealth distribution and creation should be left to the markets?
1: think this is interesting as most of you probably know i think of myself as a libertarian conservative and so generically speaking in general i'm for the government doing as little as possible for a number of reasons the most basic of which is the thing that distinguishes government from the private sector is the government has a monopoly on the legitimate use of force in general is a bad thing the Essence of government, to me, is coercive power, and that should be used very limitedly. That said, it seems clear to me that there's some really fundamental unfairness, inequity, in American society today, and that it's worse, more unequal, more unfair than uh, when I was growing up 50 plus years ago. I would commend to everybody a book called The Upswing, which is by Robert Putnam and somebody else. He wrote Bowling Alone. He talks about what he calls the I, we, I curve and posits that they're very long cycles in which society oscillates between a strong individualism, I, and the maximization of individual choice, individual, don't want to use the word liberty, but individualistic possibilities, I exalted over community and we. He, as I've said, that starting in the 70s to the financial crisis was a period of what I called empowered individualistic capitalism. Putnam makes the point that, in general, we've been on the ascendant part of the I-curve. He posits that sort of peak, peaked in that we'll see an expansion of community kind of ideals. And you've already seen, you know, whether it matters or not, whether it means anything or not, the Chamber of Commerce moving from their Freedmanian kind of statement of the corporate purpose to an acknowledgement or the view that business has responsibilities other than to shareholders and to profit making. I think it's actually right to understand what looks like they might be purely market sorts of results as coming from a broader culture and sociology. So if you look at over the last 50 years, the spread between more or less all industries, very, very broadly, the spread between the what management earns and what labor earns has widened dramatically. Now, is that a result of management suddenly becoming more valuable, relatively speaking, over time or relatively scarce over time? No, I think not. I think it's a reflection of attitudes and those are changing. So I think government has tended to Fail and so division when it is explicitly uh, picking winners and losers, where it is explicitly appointing benefactors and detractors. Uh, I think the focus should be on public goods. To me, the best thing government can do is improve K through 12 education and non-college alternatives. Stanley Druckenmiller for a while was was talking on college campuses about the government debt and one of the things he highlighted is over the last 50 years government spending went from whatever it was you know 75 or 80 percent public goods to 75 or 80 percent transfer payments and obviously you know one can quibble about the definition of public goods and whether they're not in fact there are transfers involved but I think things that are on their face, public goods, Uh, K-12 education qualifies, entities like the uh, CDC, National Institute of Health, you know, all those things qualify. And I think government can and should be cognizant of the distributive effects of support for different public goods, but it really should be directed in that way, you know, public goods as opposed to transfers from one group in society to another.
0: Our next question comes from Judd. Bitcoin, is it reasonable to think it will be used by the masses and will it be accepted by businesses like credit cards?
1: In the early days of Bitcoin, I thought it would go down in history as one of the great mass illusions of all time. And I read an article by George Gilder, which I think is the best thing written on Bitcoin to date. It was written multiple years ago, early on in the Bitcoin phenomenon. I think it's titled Gold, Bitcoin, and the Information Theory of Money. Ultimately, I don't think Bitcoin is going to have widespread acceptance, I think, at the End of the day, it won't be worth very much, and it will be kind of, uh, forgive the terminology, but a bit player in the financial system. But Gilder's point, which I think was really, really interesting, is that to think of money as a pipeline, as a transmission mechanism for the flow of information, and as a medium for transmission of information... You want that to have as little noise as possible, as little signal as possible. He kind of turns on his head the idea that gold has been money because gold has intrinsic value and says, no, the reason gold has worked as money is not that it has intrinsic value but that it's intrinsically worthless that it's completely devoid of information a pure kind of transmission mechanism which made me think that bitcoin was specifically modeled after gold in terms of some of its features infinitely divisible finite supply work to get and it's called mining for bitcoin It's not called something else at the end of the day i think governments will not willingly give up the monopoly on legal tender and the benefits to governments to controlling that and that in fact they can. First of all, one will always require dollars if you're a US citizen to pay one's taxes. Governments can certainly make any transaction using something other than dollars onerous. They can you know, certainly not enforce contracts settled in Bitcoin. While I think it's interesting And the idea of money as a transmission mechanism as something that should be, as a matter of theory, intrinsically worthless is interesting. I don't think you can separate money from contract, contract from enforcement, enforcement from government. So I think at the end of the day, Bitcoin will not be a mass medium of exchange or for that matter. And if that's not going to happen, if it don't, won't work as a medium of exchange, it's very, very hard to see how it works as a store of value. I think Bitcoin is interesting. It's fun to watch, but I do not think it will replace government-issued currencies.
0: Our next question comes from Alex. Looking back on the recovery from COVID in both consumer spending and the equity markets since March, How much of this do you attribute to fiscal programs, and how much to monetary policy? How do you see these forces interacting in 2021?
1: Let me say first that monetary policy and fiscal policy have never been more blurred, which is something I think we can expect going forward. So monetary policy, uh, interest rates and credit, fiscal policy, direct taxing and spending. But we have something like Congress appropriates money, to everybody in the country, a $1,000 check. That's fiscal policy. The Fed drops $100 bills from helicopters a la Ben Bernanke's suggestion at some point. That's monetary policy. Something like the PPP, The payroll protection plan, is really in between. The Fed's purchase of certain assets would also strike me as in between. That's first. The line is, in fact, blurry. As to the recovery in financial markets is unambiguous and clear, just in terms of where publicly traded stocks are and credit-sensitive instruments, etc. I would somewhat arbitrarily, again, because it's sort of hard to distinguish between what's monetary and what's fiscal policy, I think that's all money, which is mostly coming from monetary policy. And the biggest sort of element being uh, the financial system put, as it were, the kind of belief that the financial system won't fail, that, that there won't be cascading defaults, asset liquidations, declining asset prices, insolvency of financial institutions. So that, I think, is the picture on the market recovery. I think... One says the recovery in consumer spending. While I haven't really done an autopsy on the Bureau of Labor's statistics, this strikes me as very tricky. I mean, certainly you have elements of closing and shutting. So, you know, we don't measure GDP from Friday night till Monday morning as, you know, a bunch of the economy closes for the weekend. So you have kind of those effects. But as we shut down and partially reopened, that said, Certain segments of the economy, you can't, in any stretch, say, have recovered in that. And their recovery, you know, I'm thinking specifically of travel, leisure, hospitality, which have been decimated and won't recover till the vaccine is widely distributed. But also sort of places that one might not have expected, you know, healthcare, education, stuff around that. If what you've seen is really, really dramatic contractions in a small but a meaningful portion of the economy and neither monetary policy nor fiscal policy have can or will put that back together we'll sort of see if uh, summer fall as in fact the threat of the virus dissipates how to what degree those segments recover i know for hotels and restaurants the conventional wisdom is sort of a uh, two to three-year time period to recover. My own guess, which is based on nothing other than my desire to get out of the house and get out of Minneapolis, is that come the fall, with 100, 150 million people are vaccinated, I would expect that world to look pretty much like the uh, status quo ante. But as I said, the conventional wisdom is, particularly for hospitality, no full recovery till 2023 or even 2024.
0: Our next question also comes from Alex. You've had a career in public markets and now in banking. What do you think the public assumes about the inner workings of both fields that are different from your experiences?
1: You know, I'm not sure on the banking front. I'm not sure what the public perception is, and I'm not sure that there should be one or that it's all different. I think one of the things... That is my perception. The uh, mega too-big-to-fail banks can do mass consumer banking, can do credit cards and so forth, and they can do Fortune 500, though maybe even not the bottom of the Fortune 500 banking. But they really do not service even mid-sized businesses, which to the public would be reasonably large. Not mega, but significant. I think for quite a while actually middle market companies have been underserved and not financially optimized. As to the uh, misperceptions on the public markets, there are a few things. I would say the biggest is how incomplete a picture of the public markets the things you can get a quote on your phone from you know every yahoo finance of every listed company you can get a quote and trading volume and so on and so forth that really is a fraction of the financial system and quite a bit more is unseen i think the second misperception is uh, that the markets are constant the markets do not change to the extent that they do over time. I think perception is dominated by physics analogy as opposed to a biology analogy and ecology analogy. People think of constant physical forces, determinative kind of outlooks, as opposed to multiple interrelationships of both competition and symbiosis. There's a truism that human nature doesn't change, and therefore markets don't really change. I don't think that's true. I mean, I think it is true that human nature is relatively constant, but the circumstances and environments and constraints that humans operate under change quite a bit over time. There are a wide variety of people that have been successful in financial markets, and they're quite a bit different. It's not as if one formula, one path is the path to success. So successful investors don't all look alike. They're quite a bit different over not-ecologic time. Very, very meaningful changes occur. Things over 10 to 20 years, the markets are quite a bit different at the end than at the beginning. I think there's at the sort of level of the things you can get a quote on your phone, there's less manipulation and less skimming than the public might perceive. That at that level, the markets are in fact fairer, but returns that one should expect are actually quite a bit lower. And I think is the public perception. I recall in Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys. He's an entertaining writer, and it's an entertaining book, but he was sort of kind of up in arms about high frequency traders skimming from the market and it being a deadweight loss to investors. But, you know, even within his narrative, it's fractions of a penny on every transaction.
0: Alex also asks, what's the worst poker bad beat you've ever had?
1: Two that I, I really remember, um, which aren't that horrendous in themselves, but the first $1,000 tournament I entered, like the third or fourth hand, I had aces against somebody else with aces, and it went all in pre flop, and uh, he made a flush, and I lost. And it happened again in another smaller tournament aces against aces, all in pre flop and he hits a flush so that's pretty bad because I think I've only had aces versus Aces all in in a poker tournament you know maybe four or five times and I lost two you know when you're you're 94 or 95 percent to split the pot. I can tell you the, the most remarkable reverse bad beat <laughs> also in a tournament with my driver John, blinds were getting significant we were both approaching short stack it went all in pre-flop he had a pair of kings i had ace king he's a three to one favorite then but then the flop came king three three so i now literally i need ace ace or three three on the turn or the river for me to win the pot so you know i have i'm a 250 or 240 to one underdog Sure enough, the uh, Turnin River came 3-3, so I won that hand. Neither John and I will ever, ever forget that.
0: Our next question comes from Judd. What's Andy's favorite starting hand in Texas Holton?
1: I'm going to use that question as an excuse for a digression with a little bit of market relevance most of the time people ask you about a hand what they are asking is what two cards did you have what two cards did he have what were the flop turn and river a poker hand is not primarily obviously your two cards his two cards are important but a hand is the whole situation Uh, what's your chip stack what's his chip stack What's your position, assuming we're talking about No Limit Poker, cash or tournament? What's the nature of the table? It's a whole situation. So you know, I'm not in the school where there are people who say I hate getting aces. Uh, I never ever say that. I love getting Aces. Aces are far and away the best hand. though very deep stacked in a cash game, you're probably better off with 910 or 10 Jack suited than a pair of aces, but I still like Aces and I'd be happy if I got you know one out of every 219 hands like I'm supposed to.
0: Our next question comes from David. What are your thoughts on Bayes' theorem, and how do you incorporate it into your business decisions and everyday life, if applicable?
1: One of the things I wrote in one of the white box letters years ago is that alpha, or what we describe as alpha, is really often and most desirably beta to a particularly well-chosen asset class. And that, I think, is absolutely a fundamental point, and it's an application of Bayes' theorem, which I told a colleague is the most important mathematical theorem as far as investing is concerned and this relates to my feeling on community banks i don't actually as a general rule want to invest in outliers outliers by definition are rare unusual Miscategorization, missing something that's relatively common even if you're quite good so if something looks like an outlier i want to find and understand the population in which it's actually not an outlier there's this whole group of stuff that looks like that and then analyze whether it makes sense or not. Lots and lots of examples of this and that kind of thinking. For example, as a general rule, as an owner of a bank, do I want to be lending to money-losing companies? No. As a general rule, do I want to be lending to people that Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank have turned down? No. But I want to refine that general rule to find sort of populations that, in fact, I think it's okay. So if we think about money losing companies, take the universe of companies that have lost money for three years in a row. I think I would posit that new companies, five years old, development stage companies with growing revenue that are losing less and less money each year and are now close to break even. Now, for those companies, a quarter of profitability is the same as multiple years. So while I don't want to look at the universe of all money losing companies, I think venture lending is interesting. I think growing companies with losing less money about to be profitable is a good-looking universe. Similarly, if, if I think about loan applicants that I know have been rejected by Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank, somewhat paradoxically, if I cannot figure out why they were rejected, that should make me less inclined to lend to them than if I understand why they were rejected, and I can figure out why that was an error. So, you know, a loan applicant that checks all the boxes and yet was rejected by major banks, it's likely that there's something that I'm missing, particularly since I'm not that detail-oriented, not that good at checking and diligencing under rocks. People generically have no intuition for statistics this is true even for people with training and mathematical ability if i ask you when i toss a coin 10 times what's the likelihood that it comes up heads or tails six times that it's six four one way or the other and and you have an inkling that that's you know not an unlikely scenario if i ask you a fair coin What are the chances that it's 600, 400? You know that that's less likely than 6 out of 10, but it doesn't seem as remote as it actually is. If it does actually come up 600 times one way or the other, it's probably not a fair coin, or that is incredibly remote, but people don't have an intuition for that. Bayes' theorem, which talks about how to adjust expectations People do actually have some intuition for the cliche if a deal seems too good to be true, it probably isn't. That's actually an example of Bayes' theorem. And people have a sense that's true. They don't often understand or universally apply it or think about where it comes from and the importance. Of the nature of the underlying population that somebody is looking at and not just their manner of discerning individual characteristics. As another example, let's say I'm shown a real attractive investment opportunity. Let's say I get it right. Nine times out of 10, I will recognize an attractive investment opportunity when presented to me. And let's also say that 99 times out of 100, I'll recognize a bad deal when I see it. I'm actually not that good. That would be assuming great things. Now, if I'm sitting at my former desk at Whitebox and uh, I get pitched stuff by uh, Goldman and, and JP Morgan and City and, and Bank America and the universe of stuff, and I'm pretty high on their list of stuff they show me. They want to have an ongoing good relationship. They do a lot of business with us. And if of 100 pitches, 10 are attractive and 90 aren't, in that situation, I'm going to get nine out of the 10 attractive ones, and I'm going to find one of the 90 that isn't actually attractive attractive. I'll make 10 investments. Nine are good, and one is bad. I'm going to have a great track record. I'm in the investing hall of fame. But now I leave White Box. I'm, I'm Andy Redleaf. On my own, uh, Goldman, City, JP Morgan still sort of pitch me, but now uh, they don't pitch me first. I only see deals that have been rejected by white box that 10 other people. And now the universe of stuff I'm seeing, you know, there's one good deal out of 199 bad ones. I'm still the same. You know, I, I haven't taken stupid pills, but now I have a 90% chance of getting the good deal. But out of the 99 bad, I make one mistake and buy that too. So now I'm buying one good deal and one bad deal. Suddenly, it looks like I've taken stupid pills. And you you sort of see this all the time. You know, people are in a situation and they're doing very, very well. They move, they change their situation. The population of stuff they're seeing has changed. They haven't changed, but now they do considerably less well. And people often, you know, will not have correctly applied Bayes' theorem to that situation. You'll hear frequently, an investment manager a fund manager whatever will say that they look at a hundred deals to find one if in fact they're actually doing that something is wrong what would be more accurate is for them to say we have very specific things we're looking for very specific categories out of the whole group of investment opportunities in the world 99 out of 100 don't meet those categories. Well, in point of fact, they should be able to determine that fairly quickly. They don't really have to look at 100 investment opportunities to get the one. They need to pre-screen or have a process for pre-screening that most of the stuff that comes across their desk actually looks like they would invest in. If they're getting 100 proposals that don't fit for every proposal that does, they're actually doing something wrong. And that's another example of Bayes' Theorem.
0: And our last question this week comes from John. I'd like to open up your book a bit and ask specifically what public traded banks you like best and for what reasons.
1: I'm going to dodge that question, uh, both because even though I don't think I'm subject to the compliance I was subject to when I ran a group of hedge funds, That voice still repeats itself in my ear, and I'm very leery of making uh, specific stock recommendations. But also, I own about 60 different names, and I think diversification is a good idea. Buffett has said diversification is a defense against ignorance, and if you don't feel ignorant, then you don't need to diversify. And I think within this sector, one will always have a necessary degree of ignorance, both because obviously one isn't able to, in a very granular way, dissect the assets of a bank, the individual loan portfolios, and it's even not possible to really dissect the processes and procedures. Presumably most bank managements that I've heard or read cues on, give a reasonable statement of procedures and process, and they are examined. So it is something of a, a leap of faith, and therefore, you know, I do think diversification is a good idea. I have analytically and in my mind broken the holdings up into a number of buckets. The principle four I would highlight in answer to the questions. There's the bucket of very low price to tangible book across the portfolio that averages a little under sixty, but I would say, you know, anything trading below seventy percent of tangible book value would probably qualify in that bucket second category is high return on equities generally speaking over 10 percent this bucket tends to trade between 80 and 90 percent of tangible book third bucket are uh, companies that have announced and are pursuing meaningful buybacks in terms of return on equity they tend to be a little bit in between the low price to book and the high return on equity And they are trading at the highest percentage of price to tangible book, 0.9 to almost one. And the last category is tagging along where an activist is already involved. I would say of the four categories, I would say I'm probably like the uh, high return on equity bucket the most, mainly because I think it's you know something of a proxy for management skill. And so even you know if there are two banks, one trading at 50% of tangible book and one trading at tangible. Book. If the one trading at 50% of tangible book has a 5% return on equity, it has a 10% return on uh, equity at market. If the high return on equity one is trading at book, earning 10% on equity. Its earnings yield, its return on market cap is the same, 10%. I think on balance i'd rather own the high return on equity one even though the frequently the low price to book one could replace issued issued debt or preferred stock buy back stock at a discount and raise their return on equity to the same level and i forgot to mention earlier but again if you look at the very low price to book stocks are about 30 percent less levered than the high return on equity so on average for the low price to book stocks, tangible book value represents about 16% of total assets versus 11 for the other categories. So almost always those stocks are under levered and have a somewhat less aggressive management. For a privately held bank, it's perfectly reasonable and in fact right to be more levered. The difference... Between a privately owned bank and a publicly owned bank is, if need be, the privately owned bank can raise equity without diluting current shareholders.
0: Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.